and welcome to the Use Guys in That podcast. Uh, today we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Keith Preston from Attack the System. Sir, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, if you wouldn't mind going through uh, the schools of anarchism for our audience um, and uh, with attention, if you wouldn't mind, to the collectivist schools, their strengths and weaknesses. And I think this is a very relevant topic to discuss, especially with things that are going on currently here in the United States. Well, when it comes to the different schools of anarchism, we could talk for days about that. Um, there are probably about as many different schools of anarchism as there are church denominations. And, um, you know, virtually any idea anyone has ever had uh, they've put uh, an anarcho hyphen in front of it. Uh, you can uh, find people out there who call themselves anarcho transhumanists and anarcho fascists and anarcho Islamists and all kinds of things. Um, so it, it's uh, one thing that I think is interesting about anarchism as a concept is just how flexible and, and malleable it is in many ways. But since you uh, mentioned the collectivist schools of anarchism, uh, th that is rooted in a tradition that began in the 19th century. Uh, and there's really no one collectivist school of anarchism. Well, there is a, a school of anarchism that's actually called collectivist anarchism. It's associated with Bakunin. Uh, but there's actually um, a number of different schools of anarchism that broadly come under the socialist label. Uh, one of them is mutualism. This is the idea that Pierre-Joseph Pierre Proudhon formulated in, uh, back in the early 19th century. Uh, mutualism, uh, roughly speaking, um, some, some of these theories have some fairly esoteric economic um, concepts associated with them, so I'm going to try to explain them as simplistically as, possibly, as possible. Uh, but mutualism is roughly the idea of an economy ordered on the basis of um, cooperatives and uh, mutual banks, which are fairly similar to what in modern times we call credit unions or something like that. Uh, and one of the theories that behind mutualism that I think is probably one of, its, one of the most unique aspects of mutualism is this idea that in a truly um, free market, if you will, of banking, that interest would essentially be impossible, that, that lending money at interest or what traditionally was called usury would be impossible in an actual non-monopolistic banking system. That is something where banks do not have any monopolistic privileges that are imposed by the state. That's one of Proudhon's basic theories. 
Um, now, there's also collectivist anarchism. Um, that, that there's actually, that's actually a term, um, collectivist anarchism, that's associated with Mikhail Bakunin. He was a Russian anarchist from the uh, 19th century. He was a rival of Karl Marx. Uh, he and Karl Marx hated each other's guts. Uh, in fact, uh, the modern um, conflict that exists between anarchists and Marxists to a large degree is, is rooted in this. There are some important uh, theoretical differences as well, but, but I think a lot of it is rooted in the personality clash between these two. But uh, collectivist anarchism was the idea on an economic level that uh, the economy should be organized as worker collectives and that remuneration is based on uh, labor production. Uh, it's essentially um, a, a, an application of the labor theory of value, which was a dominant uh, uh, economic theory in the 19th century. Now, it's not, it, it's actually older than that. It actually goes back to classical liberal thinkers from the 19th, from the 18th century, like Adam Smith and David Ricardo. But the labor theory of value was prevalent in the 19th century. And there was this idea that Bakunin and his followers had would be that um, without uh, state, cap without capitalism or without the state capitalism or whatever you want to call it, the natural wage rates of an individual that was, say, a worker who was part of a worker collective would be, uh, would amount it to the labor, the value of their labor according to the labor theory of value. Uh, that's something of a, a mouthful, I guess. Um, that, that theory is no longer prevalent in economics. Uh, it, it was largely supplanted in the late 19th, early 20th century by um, the marginal utility theory, which, you know, that's another complicated theoretical concept. Uh, but that's that's essentially what collectivist anarchism is. Now, there's also anarcho-communism, um, and many people today who are self-identified as anarchists will call themselves anarcho-communists, whether they actually read any you know, historic uh, anarcho-communist literature or know the first thing about anarcho-communism from a theoretical perspective is another question, but that, that's a commonly used label. Uh, and a lot of times when you see these people at protests with the black flags and the masks and stuff like that, if they're if they claim to be anarchists, which not all of them are, but but if they claim to be anarchists, they'll often say they are anarcho-communists. But anarcho-communism actually has a theory to it. It was developed by uh, Peter Kropotkin, who was another Russian. Uh, it's, it's both Bakunin and Kropotkin were Russians, and they both came from the Russian aristocracy, which was was interesting. Um, but the uh, Kropotkin had this idea that the uh, natural form of society would be a society based on voluntary cooperation. The, his idea was that the, minus the state, minus the coercive apparatus of the state, people would naturally be cooperative, which goes against the Hobbesian view of, of, of humanity, which is the idea that human beings are naturally aggressive and competitive. Uh, Kropotkin believed that, that, that those kinds of tendencies among humanity were bred by institutional structures, which was, so this is an idea that's somewhat similar to what you find in Jean-Jacques Rousseau. But Kropotkin believed that minus the kind of institutional apparatus that bred these kinds of behaviors or attitudes or psychological frameworks, that human beings would be naturally cooperative, and then that natural cooperation would lead to a kind of stateless communism uh, the idea that uh, people would largely live in communes and, and that labor would largely be done on a cooperative basis, 
uh, and that exchange would be more like gifts. Uh, you know, with, uh, in fact, there are some modern theorists of this idea that call it, call it the gift economy. Um, and that's sort of, uh, an es sort of the essence of what anarcho-communism is, at least on a more abstract, more theoretical level, on a more sophisticated level. Um, there's also another point of view that's associated with Henry George. Henry George was um, an, an American economist that lived in the 19th century. And there's a theoretical framework that's based on his ideas. It's just called Georgism, or sometimes it's just called Geoism. And then applied in an anarchist context, it's called geo-anarchism or geo-libertarianism or Georgist anarchism. Uh, but the idea is that uh, land is sort of a natural right, and it opposes the idea of property rights in land. But it's not against property rights necessarily in the sense of possession and use. Uh, it opposes this idea of um, like the idea of land ownership that we find in modern societies is based on the theories of John Locke, uh, the, the early Enlightenment thinker, the English Enlightenment thinker, who basically believed that ownership of land is pretty much based on accumulation. And theoretically, that's still how the right of land ownership is defined in modern societies like our own somewhat. I mean, it's, it's, it's modified with other things, but... In the United States, for example, it probably would not be theoretically impossible for one person to own an entire state. Like someone, say, like Jeff Bezos, could probably buy Montana and say, "This is my, uh, you know, this is my domain or, or fiefdom or whatever." Right, right, right. right. And uh, now there I, there may be some other legal barriers to that, like uh, I, I don't know, maybe antitrust laws or something would would conflict with that on some level but on on a, on a sufficiently abstract level it's not it's not theoretically impossible and in fact uh that idea is somewhat rooted in in older feudal concepts of land ownership where the where you have the idea of a of a realm that's the rightful uh property of the, the monarch or the fief uh, or the fiefdom you know the aristocratic fiefdom the lord uh, we, we see that ownership, that, that approach to land ownership still exists in certain parts of the world. We see it in parts of Latin America where they have this thing called the Latifundia. Uh, and we also particularly see it in the uh, in Middle East, uh, the, in, the, in the societies in the Middle East that are genuine traditional societies like, say, Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or um, um, the, the United Arab Emirates. Some of those countries, they have this kind of feudal concept of what land ownership is. But Georgism, though, is based on the idea that land ownership is essentially should be based on possession and use for productive purposes. It's a concept that would, in the Catholic tradition, they call usufructuary rights. Now, a Catholic social teaching is based on this idea that uh, ownership is based on stewardship. So meaning that if you own and control land, you're supposed to put it to some productive use. So if you take this idea to its logical conclusion, it would bar things like, say, absentee landlordism. And a lot of modern socialist-leaning anarchists will say, well, being a landlord is illegitimate because you're not really producing anything. You're just being parasitical off of rent and things like that. And, and some will even argue that, um, that in a truly stateless society, um, rent collection would not be possible because the legal framework for it wouldn't exist or the state enforcement mechanism wouldn't exist. Uh, e there are even individualist anarchists who don't really 
buy into the label of socialist for themselves, or at least they perhaps might might hold to a kind of what they would consider to be a modified type of socialism. Uh, but even some of them would say that uh, with minus the state, rent is impossible. Some will say interest is impossible. Some will say profit is even impossible. Uh, so, um, and I, what I've just given you is just a few examples. These are these are these are some of the more um, prevalent, you know, historical trends within you know collectivist or socialist leaning forms of anarchism. There are others that are derivative of these, and then there are others that overlap with these as well. You know, I could talk about. Um, Bordesiaism or uh, some of that kind of stuff, but I think what I've explained so far is a pretty good overview. Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, the question I have for you also, uh, when we're talking about anarcho-syndicalism, uh, something that uh, came out of, uh, well, I guess the most popular um, the most popular example would be what happened in, uh, in Spain uh, during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, there are some people that I've, that I've read that have said that syndicalism is just a path to the eventual anarcho-communist outcome, and some of them believe that they are two separate schools. Uh, where do you lean on that interpretation? Do you believe that it's more of a path to anarcho-communism or full communism, or do you believe that syndicalism is more its own tradition by itself? Well, it can be either one, depending on who you're talking to and what sect of anarchist you're dealing with. Um, yeah, and I forgot to mention that. I'm glad you brought that up because that is an important tradition, although it's somewhat distinctive from the, these other traditions. Um, Anarcho-syndicalism is based on the idea that uh, through the organization of labor unions, you can create the foundation of a new kind of economic order. In fact, the, uh, the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, which still exists. It's not politically relevant. It's just basically a history club, but it still exists. Um, and, and at one point, it was a large labor federation that existed in the United States. Uh, that, that was it, They didn't really call themselves anarcho-syndicalists, but it was based on the anarcho-syndicalist model of, of labor organization. But anarcho-syndicalism is based on the idea that you have labor unions, and then that labor unions essentially stage uh, a series of general strikes through which workers take over industries and then create a new kind of industrial system where the workers are essentially running heavy industry as a kind of collective democratic commune or feder perhaps a federation of democratic communes. Uh, and then uh, syndicalists will argue that some degree of centralization is necessary when it comes to large-scale industrial production. And they will say that rather than having a state that engages in, say, central planning, like a Soviet Union type of system, that instead you have these federations of delegates that um, meet together and then they formulate an economic, common economic plan um, in terms of production, in terms of, and, and then through, uh, you have you have production that's done through the labor organizations, and then you have the distribution and, and use of resources to things like consumer cooperatives and things like that. Now, there are some syndicalists, anarcho-syndicalists, who basically leave it at that. Who say, "Well, that's what you know, we're going to—that's what the post-capitalist uh, industrial organization is going to be." 
And then you have some that take it further and they say, well, no, this is just a prelude to anarcho-communism where not only we're going to have industrial federations and consumer cooperatives and, and things like that, but they we're also going to have an economic system that's based on the gift economy where labor is largely just done on a cooperative basis and um, everything is essentially free, basically, uh, to the degree that it's been produced. Like work, goods, goods that are produced by the workers go to... Uh, collect common storehouses and then you can go take whatever you need or something like that. You, know, you don't even have to have money. We can abolish money and or, or maybe in certain rare things, you know, there might be a ration card or something of that nature. Uh, but that's essentially what anarcho-syndicalism is. There, there's also right-wing anarchist um, anarcho-syndicalism. There's left-wing anarchist and right-wing anarchist anarcho-syndicalism. Um, what happened in Spain in the 1930s is uh, an example of leftist anarcho-syndicalism, but there's also what's called national syndicalism. Who have National syndicalists have somewhat similar views, except they advocate creating this kind of system within the context of a nationalist revolution, and usually the nation is some group that's being oppressed ostensibly by some external power, some foreign state or, or colonial or occupying power or something like that. Uh, this is a question I have for you that comes from the article that you wrote, uh, More Anarchist Than Thou, as a reply to anti-fascist news. And I'm going to quote from it. It says, as a reading of even the most elementary level book on anarchism will indicate anarchism is in fact a collection of many varied and diverse currents just as to use the christian analogy once again the christian faith consists of many thousands of traditions sects and denominations that have existed throughout history and throughout the world today why is this such a is an issue for people that come from the i guess if we're still going to use the french model of calling them leftists our left-wing anarchists why is this so, so problematic for uh those who identify with those uh radical left uh sects of anarchism why cannot why is it almost like a uh, heresy to have anybody stepping outside it's almost like saying that the model t was the best car and any car subsequently made after that is is null and void because it's not it's not the first automobile like it's 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 almost it's almost like a ridiculous thing like we can't have many different choices within this movement well uh the reason that i use the christian analogy for so many of these things is that because that's what i come from uh, I was, uh, when I was growing up as a kid, I was came from a very sectarian, very fundamentalist, very evangelical Christian type of environment. And one thing that I find fascinating, uh, you know, much dec many decades later, is how anarchists think in virtually the same way as, as Christian fundamentalists. Um, so to answer your uh, first question, um, you know, why do these, some, some leftist anarchists say all of these other kinds of anarchism or heresy, well, it's for the same reason that the uh, the, the very uh, fundamentalist Baptists think that the Catholic Church are all are heretics and are not true anarchists. Or the reason that the Catholic Church thinks that, many, at least the, the hardcore traditionalist Catholics, they think that Protestants are heretics. Um, within any kind of uh, belief system, a philosophical system, you have people who attach themselves to a particular set of ideas and exclude all of the others and say, well, that's not true, whatever, uh, they're, they're, they're not real, whatever we are. You find this in Islam, 
for example. Uh, a lot of the sectarian religious conflicts that takes place that take place in the Middle East between different Islamic sects are, are just like this. Um, you know, the well, no, this person doesn't really interpret the Quran or the or the Hadith or, or whatever in the correct way, or this particular sect doesn't really have a, a rightful claim on the historical lineage of the Prophet or, or whatever. Uh, and you even find this in Buddhism as well. Uh, you, among Buddhist groups, you find all the same sectarian battles that you find among Christians and, and Muslims. Um, so anarchists are just doing what people with ideas have, and that is people with ideas will attach themselves to a particular set of ideas and assume that this is the right way and that people who deviate from this are, are wrong. Uh, and, and, and among anarchists, this can get pretty extreme. Uh, I, I know of one fellow who uh, wanted to read, uh, essentially wanted to read Proudhon and Bakunin out of historic anarchism. Uh, he said, well, Proudhon may have been the first modern person to call himself an anarchist, and, and Bakunin may have been the, the guy who was the leader of the anarchists and the first international, but really those guys are just a prelude to anarcho-communism, and anarcho-communism is, tr is the true form of anarchism. Uh, so that's really what we need to think about. We need to think about uh, uh, anarcho-communism and say, well, it really just begins with Kropotkin and everything Everything else is kind of irrelevant. Uh, there was a, a book written some years ago, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was written by a couple of South African anarchists. Um, and they were taking a somewhat similar point of view, although they were willing to include Bakunin in their paradigm, I believe. But um, they were arguing against a, a book. There's this, there's this book that was published back in the early 20th century, uh, probably around 1910, maybe 1905, something like that. Uh, it was written by a German jurist named Paul Elsbacher, and he was examining the different schools of anarchist thought as they were in the early 20th century. Uh, and this is when anarchism internationally was a very large and well-known movement. Um, but he uh, he examined what I call the big seven thinkers in classical anarchism, and it was William Godwin, Max Stirner, Pierre Joseph Proudhon, um, Benjamin Tucker, Leo Tolstoy, and then um, Bakunin and Kropotkin. Um, he, he, he was examining each of the big seven and talking about how these guys are really the founders of the each of the, the primary schools of anarchism, or at least the schools of anarchism that were influential during that time period. And uh, this this other book that I'm referring to that these two South African fellows wrote, they were they were arguing vociferously against this, saying, well, no, you know, uh, William Godwin has nothing to do with anarchism and, and Max Stirner has nothing to do with anarchism and Benjamin Tucker has nothing to do with anarchism. And um, Leo Tolstoy has nothing to do with anarchism. And they were a bit lukewarm, I think, on, on Proudhon. They were willing to include Bakunin. Um, but essentially what they were arguing was this other what they were arguing was the same thing as the fellow I was referring to before, and that is that only their their version of anarchism is simply that anarchism is the extreme fringe wing of socialism, and that's it. Uh, and that's that's all anarchism is, uh, which, you know, I think is obviously a very narrow definition of anarchism, you know, but it's no different than, say, uh, people in some of these uh, what are called charismatic Protestant church denominations who speak in tongues and they say, well, people who don't speak in tongues are not real Christians, even though you know, most Christians all over the world throughout history have, did not and have not spoken in tongues. Uh, so it's, you know, it's simply the same kind of concept that you find in any belief system. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, the other question I had, too, that somebody wrote into our uh, Twitter page 
regarding a term that I had never uh, heard before, and uh, Chris, uh, our other host, and I, we uh, did a quick dive on it, mentioned the term anarcho-Bolshevism, and I had a hard time with that because, you know, as a uh, part of my undergraduate study was, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the history, you know, you, you do cover some of the, the Russian Revolution, the, the, the first one, uh, uh, and then you get into the Bolshevik Revolution. And I always thought that those two things were really diametrically opposed, just like I'm sure that an, anarcho-communists or ANCOMs feel that anarcho-capitalism are two things that shouldn't be mixing together at all. And we did a dive, and we actually went to a left-wing or a leftist, a radical leftist uh, site. I, I'm sure you're familiar with it, libcom.org. And it was nothing but pejoratives regarding this term, meaning that uh, the people at the time who were labeled as anarcho-Bolsheviks or uh, uh, were those who abandoned the anarchist cause and uh, made a coalition with uh, the Bolshevik Party, the Bolshevik, Bolshevik movement during the Russian Civil War. And I was just wondering if you had any experience with that term, if, uh, if you uh, found, have any different information regarding that term. Yeah. Um, well, as you pointed out, it's an old term that goes back to that time period. Uh, and it, what happened in the Russian Revolution is that the Bolshevik Party, um, the, the term Bolshevik is, is um, it, it's because it's in, a, in the Russian language, which, which most Westerners don't know, sounds exotic, but it, all it means is minority. It was just a, uh, a minority faction within the Russian Social Democratic Party. So when somebody calls themselves a, a Bolshevist or a Bolshevik, they just really mean minority, which is you know, a fairly uh, uh, generic term. But the, uh, the Bolshevik Party, which was a sort of a spinoff radical group from the Russian Social Democratic Movement, uh, seized power and what amounted to a coup in, in 1917. The Russian, the Russian Revolution of 1917 was actually two revolutions. I think you mentioned that a, a moment ago. Uh, there was the one in the Russian calendar at the time was different than the Western calendar, but it's either the February or March revolution, depending on which calendar you're using. So you have the, uh, the overthrow of the czar in early 1917, and there's a provisional government that's put in power uh, under the leadership of this guy named Alexander Kerensky. And the, uh, the idea behind the Kerensky government was that uh, Russia was going to be sort of a Western-like constitutional republic, uh, you know, like, like in Western Europe and America and places like that. Uh, then uh, in October or November of 1917, depending on which calendar you're using, there was a coup. There was essentially what amounted to a military coup by the Bolsheviks. Uh, and the Bolsheviks became the foundation of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. I mean, that they created the Soviet Union. And, and they created the Communist Soviet, the, the, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the Soviet state itself. And, and the term Bolshevism is rooted in that, um, the, the coup that was carried out in, the, in, 19, in, in late 1917 by Lenin and his associates. Uh, one of the first things that the government of Lenin did was they tried to suppress all rival revolutionary factions uh, because they wanted a complete monopoly on power. So they were engaged in repression of, of social democrats and, and liberals and anarchists and, and other socialists and, and uh, other Marxists, uh, as, as well as conservatives and czarists and, and the Russian Orthodox Church and all of that, too. Uh, so they wanted a complete monopoly on power. 
And, of course, there were anarchists that were engaged in rebellion against this. The most famous example was the uh, movement in the Ukraine, uh, led by a guy named Nestor Makhno, who got into a civil war with the Bolsheviks. Um, there was also a revolt by workers at a naval base called Kronstadt that was eventually suppressed by the Red Army. The Red Army, army was uh, the Bolshevik army was uh, was led by uh, Leon Trotsky, uh, and they were there was a, a massacre of, of work of workers and sailors at this this naval base. Uh, and but there were anarchists, of course, who defected from anarchism and joined the Bolshevik cause and you know there's always people that want to be on the winning team no matter what that's you know, that's just how things go sure. that happened that happened in the united states as well when the russian revolution happened uh, a lot of people who had been involved in anarchism and anarcho-syndicalism and the iww and stuff like that became bolsheviks or, or joined the communist party when that was founded uh and you know it wasn't just entirely about opportunism i mean it was basically just uh Many people thought that that was the wave of the future. Many people thought, okay, well, okay, a revolution has actually happened, and it, it was it was this model that made it happen. This this Bolshevik uh, model that made it happen. So now we need to be Bolsheviks because that's that's been shown to be the way forward. That was quite a, kind of the logic behind that. In fact, I remember uh, many years ago, I was an anarcho syndicalist at the time, and I mean, I'm very generic in my anarchism today, but. At the time, I was a fairly hardcore anarcho-syndicalist, and I uh, was having a debate with a Maoist. This was someone from the Revolutionary Communist Party, um, and from this, this was probably about 32 years ago. But uh, and I remember saying that I was an anarcho-syndicalist, and, and she was saying, well, yeah, but that was fine in, in 1910. You know, but 1917 showed that the Bolshevik way was the was the right way, and then it didn't start there. You then Mao Zedong in 1949 showed that you know this or that was the right way. Uh, so the point being is that a lot of the people who did that were actually believed in this. It wasn't just about just switching sides to make sure you're on the winning team. Although there was plenty of that as well, um, and there were there was actually uh, a number of disputes that emerged uh, among anarchists concerning what their relationship with Bolshevism should be. And I'm talking about leftist, socialist-inclined anarchists. I'm not talking about individualist anarchists or points of view that would today be called anarcho-capitalist, even if they, if they weren't called that then. Um, the, the, a lot of the disputes were about, uh, well, should we collaborate with the Bolshevik government? Should we support a Bolshevik government? Should we be 100% opposed to a Bolshevik government? Should we engage in armed struggle against the Bolshevik government? And there were a number of anarchist factions that went in different ways on that. There was one uh, tendency that is somewhat influential among the uh, leftist-type anarchists today. You mentioned Libcom.org. I believe that they are a reflection of this tendency, and that's called platformism. Uh, platformism was a type of leftist anarcho-communism um, that was anti-Bolshevik. It, it took a hard left line. It, they weren't anything like individualist anarchism or anarcho-capitalism or anything like that. These were hardline leftist anarcho-communists, but they were also adamantly anti-Bolshevik and even supported the civil war of the, uh, Magno, uh, the Magno movement in the Ukraine against the Bolsheviks. Uh, now there were also uh, there was uh, there was another tendency that rejected that, um, and they were uh, led by a Russian writer named Volin, and they actually came up with a manifesto of their own, and they came up with a tendency within anarchism of their own that they called synthesism, 
And they argued that anarcho hardline anarcho-communism, while it was correct to oppose Bolshevism, was still too narrow a perspective. And they favored the synthesis of all the different types of anarchism that existed at the time. They said, yeah, you know, mutualism is a legitimate form of anarchism, and uh, collectivist anarchism is legitimate, and Tolstoyan anarchism is legitimate, and individualist anarchism is legitimate. Uh, you also had a similar point of view that developed in the West, in, in North and South America, and maybe even in Western Europe, called anarchism without adjectives. And in... Uh, in America, it was associated with a thinker named Voltairine de Clare. She was a writer for um, uh, Liberty Magazine, which was Benjamin Tucker's journal, which was uh, an individualist anarchist magazine. But she, she was also a personal friend of Emma Goldman, who was a leading anarcho-communist activist, I guess, is what she was. Um, but Voltairine de Clare adopted this point of view called anarchism without adjectives. And then there were other uh, anarchists in Latin America, like in, uh, in Mexico and during the Mexican Revolution. I, I, and this point, ideas like this existed in Europe as well, for instance. And uh, there was a, a very influential anarchist in France named Far Sebastian Farr, who, who had the synthesis point of view that Moline had uh, articulated. So yeah, that's uh, that's in an, and that's the essence of what you're getting at there. I think. All right, thank you very much, sir. Uh, Chris, you got something for uh, Mr. Preston? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I'm going to kind of switch gears in my question here and talk a little bit more about some current events. Um, I guess really, I just wanted to know, like, what some of your opinions are on uh, like what's going on in Washington with that Capitol Hill autonomous zone. Um, I know we we kind of had a pre pre-show discussion before you came on um, we were talking about some of the things that they were doing already like they were implementing like stop and frisk policies uh, and they were they've already started like implementing segregation and stuff so I, I, I guess I just kind of wanted some of your opinions on that yeah I, I, I've been following the autonomous zone uh, incident and um, you know the movement or whatever in Seattle uh, before anyone gets too carried away with that, I would point out that from what I understand, this only uh, covers about six blocks of territory in Seattle. So it's not like they've taken over the city and created this autonomous, uh, you know, um, anarchist city state or anything like that. I'm not even sure that the people involved in this uh, call themselves anarchists. Uh, maybe some of them do, but I know a lot of these Antifa people are probably involved in it. And then just general uh Radicals from the left generally, I think, are involved in this. Um, and these kinds of things are not necessarily um, unusual. I mean, whenever there's civil unrest and upheaval and stuff like that, you'll see different types of radicals creating these autonomous zones of different types. And some are more serious than others, and some are larger than others, and some are more durable than others. Um, but I, I think, though, that the points that you're raising are interesting because um, the, I've always had a criticism of some of these hard left anarchists, uh, where I have called them anarcho-Bolshevists and things like that as well. Uh, and I always thought that if given the opportunity, they would probably replicate a lot of the kinds of stuff that uh, they criticize when other people are doing it. Um, in fact, it was, it was somewhat amusing because I was watching uh, some uh, broadcast from Fox News the other night. Of course, Fox News is the, the reactionary, you know, right-wing um, propaganda outlet. But you had all of these talking heads like Tucker Carlson and, and Sean Hannity and all those familiar figures talking about uh, what's happening in 
Seattle. And of course, they're ridiculing this and they're talking about how all these dirty hippies are making a mess of the city and, and, all, and all the predictable stuff. But one thing they brought up, or at least Tucker Carlson brought up, that was funny, was uh, he was saying, yeah, well, actually, um, they've now decided that they like borders. Uh, he was talking about how um, at one point there were some of, some of these uh, Antifa people actually got into a violent uh, confrontation with some ICE agents. I think this was in Portland, not in, not in Seattle, but this happened about a year ago. But he was talking about how, yeah, now they've, they've blockaded the area and they've actually set up borders of their own and they've got checkpoints and their own border police. And, you know, so they've now become immigration restrictionists. Um, but the, uh, I think, though, that that gets to one of the things that I find most problematic with left wing thought. I mean, there's certainly plenty of problems with right wing thought. But uh, one of the things that I find most problematic with left-wing thought is the left tends to become the right once it becomes powerful. Uh, the left is basically uh, what people are when they're out of power. When they become powerful, they become the right. Um, and, I, and interestingly, we see these groups of anarchists or whatever Antifa or whatever they are uh, doing this uh, even within the space of a few city blocks, and it only took them about 24 hours uh, to get to that point. Um, and you, you, you see this over and over and over again in leftist movements and revolutions. Um, of course, you guys probably know this, but the, uh, I think you, one of you mentioned this earlier, but the terms left and right have their roots in the uh, French Revolution. Well, that, it's actually prior to the French Revolution. In the French National Assembly, you had the right, which were the people who wanted to uh, retain the traditional elite, which is the monarchy and the hereditary aristocracy and the established church and all of that. And then you had the people on the so-called left, which wanted to have a, uh, a, a republic, which wouldn't be a radical idea by today's standards. I mean, most, most all modern, the majority of modern governments are left by that standard. Uh, but the people on the right, the monarchists, um, they sat on the right side of the National Assembly and the people who wanted a republic sat on the left side of the National Assembly. So that's how you get the right and left difference today. Uh, and then in the, in the 19th century is when the left starts to become identified with socialism and communism and things like that. But you see this whole trajectory of left revolutions. Um, it, it, in fact, you could even include the American Revolution in this. But, but if you go back and if you look at the revolutions of the 18th century, like the, the one in the United States, the one in, in France, uh, the one in Haiti, which is not as well known. The, uh, also in the 19th century, you had a wave of revolutions in Latin America that were essentially the Latin American version of the French Revolution and expelled the Spanish Empire from Latin America. For some reason, that never gets mentioned in a lot of conventional history. Um, and, um, and, and then you also getting into the 20th century, you start to see the communist revolutions in Russia and in China and Cuba and in Vietnam and places like that. But in every one of these cases, what you see is the left becoming the right as soon as they get control of the state or as soon as they even get power on any level. Uh, they immediately start replicating the things that they opposed before. Uh, while out of power, they would agitate for, say, free speech or something like that. 
uh, as soon as they get in power, well, now we've got to have censorship because if we don't have censorship, well, counter-revolutionaries are going to uh, disseminate propaganda or people with retrograde and reactionary and unprogressive ideas are going to disseminate propaganda and that's going to undermine the revolution or create a counter-revolution. Um, and uh, say, when it comes to, say, religion, uh, when out of power, leftists will say, well, you know, the, the church is tyrannical and the church shouldn't be able to tell people what to think or what to believe or what to practice or whatever. But then as soon as they gain power, then they start saying, well, everybody's got to belong to this particular religion. You know, in the Soviet Union, they were saying everyone's got to be an atheist or in the uh, French Revolution, they were saying everyone's got to be a deist and uh, belong to the cult of reason. Uh, in the Iranian Revolution, they were saying, well, everyone's got to be a Shia fundamentalist. Um and that kind of process plays out over and over and over and over and over again to the point where I'd say it's the norm. It's pretty much a historical law. I mean, if there's a such thing as a historical law, this would be one of them, that the left becomes the right as soon as it becomes uh, successful. And and even on a very elementary level, something like what's happening in Chaz, it seems to be following that trajectory as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why we were, we were talking about how just – you know, like you said, whenever the left comes into power, they just essentially become the right. It just, it just seems such like such hypocrisy to me. I have, an, I have a question for you, uh, sir. Uh, when uh, I'm quoting from the article that you wrote back in 2015, uh, ignoring the elephant in the room, and the quote is as follows: "The anti-fascist action, the Antifa claims as their legacy today, was originally a highly nationalist." an authoritarian branch of the German Communist Party, the KPD. It was, a, it was the follower of the Rotkampfverbund, the paramilitary branch of the KPD, which was banned in 1932 by the German government. Um, the Antifa, like I had read enough literature uh, when I was a little bit younger to know that, uh, that Antifa existed way before they started surfacing here in the United States, maybe more vocally or more in the open in the past five to six years. But in uh, in Europe specifically, I remember them and the Black Bloc, the other anarchists that were from Germany, would openly be fighting the police in the streets, and they, they would have all sorts of, they would squat in different buildings, and then the cops would come in and fight with them. My question is, is like, why, how can someone claim to be an anti-fascist organization when, like, like you just, you just elucidated, like, we, we see them immediately trying to silence other people, which, you know, for most of us would appear to be a very fascistic thing to do. So I don't know how they can get away with calling themselves anti-fascist when they operate by very fascist means. Well, there's a lot of, un, uh, obscure and esoteric history as well as theory to and untangle here but the anti-fascists the antifa the people who call themselves the antifa by, by abbreviation the anti-fascists yes uh that has its roots in uh the 1920s uh when you actually had these street level pitched battles in throughout different european countries between the hard right and the hard left and the hard right would be groups like in Germany, you had the brown shirts and all of that, and the black shirts in Italy, and you had comparable groups in a lot of other European countries and Latin American countries, and even the United States to some degree. You had the silver shirts, a group called the silver shirts in the uh, United States. But, uh, so that was the far right. And then on the far left, you would have comparable paramilitary type groups. 
that would, uh, and usually they were led by the communists. Um, they would, they tended to be the most extreme and the most militant. They had others that were socialists and others that were left anarchists. In Germany, that kind of stuff tended to be dominated by the KPD, the German Communist Party, because they were aligned with the Soviet Union. So you actually had the Soviet state backing them, um, and they had a, a their own. The party was the German Communist Party. The, in, in the, the German acronym is the uh, the KPD, but then the uh, their actual paramilitary arm was called the Red Front, and then they used to get into a lot of violent street fights with um, the uh, brown shirts and and the SS, which was the uh, or the SA, it was originally called the SA, um, which were the the paramilitary wing of the Nazi Party. Imagine, uh, you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with all these. Uh, street fights we've had in, in recent years between the alt-right and the Antifa and stuff like that in Charlottesville and Berkeley and all of that. Imagine that kind of stuff on a much, much larger scale where it's it's where it's serious combat and serious warfare and there's machine guns being used and stuff like that. That's what this kind of stuff was. Um, so the modern Antifa claimed that as their legacy and they've even adopted the flags of the anti-fascist um, movement in Germany in some instances. And now the Antifa isn't isn't really. I wouldn't go so far as to say they're direct descendants of that. They're, they sort of they sort of appropriated that. The Antifa movement uh, is has its roots in the skinhead culture of the seventies and the seventies and eighties. You had, during with, during the same time that punk rock was starting to become a popular thing. Uh, during that same time period, you had these punk rock influence gangs that in different countries, mostly European countries, that uh, would adopt the skinhead look and, and that kind of stuff. And some of them were uh, racists and some of them were anti-racists and or some of them were leftist or rightist. So you, they, they would devolve off into these different gangs and fight each other. And th that kind of stuff was around when I was young. Uh, back in the 1980s, we had these skinhead gangs that would uh, that, that were a lot like the Antifa. They would see them out roaming in large groups, and they would never fight unless there was a bunch of them together. Because if they had to fight anybody who could actually fight, or where it was a fair fight, it was an even number, they'd always lose. So that <laughs> they always had to fight when they outnumbered their op opponents something like six to one, and even then they wouldn't do very well. And the, and the Antifa are the same way today. Um, but you had you had uh, within the skinhead movement, the neo-Nazi skinhead movement in the United States in the 80s. You had uh, you had anti-Nazi skinheads. You had this one group called uh, Sharp Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice, uh, which were basically they were actually uh, thought of themselves as patriotic Americans, like they were against fascism and racism because it was un-American, at least from their viewpoint. Um, and then you also had more leftist skinheads or whatever. You had this one group called Anti-Racist Action, which I think is still around, or it was around for a while. Uh, but all of these were predecessors to this Antifa stuff that exists today. Uh, and that's true in Europe as well. A lot of the, the European Antifa are rooted more in this kind of skinhead subculture that came out, or, or the punk rock subculture, and all the stuff that came out of the 60s and 70s and 80s. And, that, and then they've appropriated some of these older symbols and rhetoric and language and terminology, um, so that, as, as opposed to being direct ancestors. Now, there's also a difference between the black bloc and the Antifa. The black bloc really are anarchists, and they they came about back in the let's see. I know they started becoming prevalent in the '90s when the anti-globalization thing started, but I think they actually they were they were around before that. 
Uh, but they they're the ones that sh would show up at leftist demonstrations and they would have these black masks on and, and engage in various disruptive activities. But they're not the Antifa. The Antifa are are rooted more in what I was just talking about. They 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 weren't directly part of the anarchist subculture itself. They were more from, from this these alternative music cultures originally. But then, of course, the, the two blended eventually, the two started to overlap at various points. So you find Antifa who are black block and vice versa, although they're still separate movements today. Even today, at a leftist demonstration, you'll see black block and then you'll see Antifa, and they're not necessarily the same people. Uh, but none of that is, is rooted in the German anti-fascist movement directly. It's, they've appropriated a lot of language and symbols, but that's not really what they are. Understood. Thank you very much. Um, let me ask, put it out to the group. Anybody else have any other questions uh, for Keith? I don't think so, no. Unless Chris does. Yeah. yeah, nothing off the top of my head, man. Like, you elaborated far more than, than than we could have hoped for, and that's a good thing. So, thank you. Thank you very much for being thorough in your explanations. Uh, no problem. I'll take any other questions you want to ask. That's fine about anything, this or any other topic. Well, you know what? We have a, we have a question that we've asked uh, a couple of times amongst ourselves, but also uh, when we had Sal the Agorist on. Uh, the term capitalism, I'm going to put it to you. Uh, sometimes, I, like I feel personally, that that is a term that we're gonna like. I would rather use the term free market. Like for like, I always considered myself an anarchist without an adjective when I discovered my anarchism when I came into anarchism. Uh, but you know, I I tend to get along with the ancaps a little bit. But I also like you have said previously in other shows that I'm not a huge fan of big business either. So. I don't know if capitalism as a term is salvageable because a lot of us use that who believe in free markets, like genuinely free markets, do not um, we we don't associate the two of them together. But our if you want to use the word brethren on the left side of the scale, use them. Uh, they have a different understanding of what the word capitalism means, and I would like to know: Do you feel that that is a word that is salvageable, or if you know the the term free market? is uh, a far better term to use. Well, the word capitalism uh, was invented by its opponents, uh, by the opponents of capitalism. In fact, Marx was the one who actually popularized the term capitalism. I'm not sure if it was original to him. It may have been, but, uh, but that's how the concept of capitalism as a pejorative uh, developed. And it's certainly true that historic anarchists, even those that were considered individualists or anarchists who are somewhat similar to modern libertarians, um, certainly those anarch historic anarchists opposed capitalism because capitalism was viewed as the economic arm of the state or as a product of the state. Uh, now, a people, uh, modern people listening to this, uh, particularly Americans, have a different idea of what capitalism is. Most people, when they hear the word capitalism, they just think of business or they think of trade and, and selling things or, or something like that. So they would say that somebody that has a plot of land and grows a patch of tomatoes and, and then trades their tomatoes to someone else that grew some corn or something like that, well, that's capitalism. That's, that, but that's not what historically capitalism meant. Capitalism was the idea that there is a system of class subordination, 
that is. You have classes that work for a living, laborers, and they are being exploited by capitalists, by industries and by financiers, you know, banks and corporations and things like that, or, or what the equivalent of that was in past times. And that this is something that is made possible by the state, that the state creates the institutional infrastructure that makes this possible. Um, and there's the difference between the anarchists and the Marxists is that the, the Marxists believe that in a market, a market economy, that capitalism, what they criticize as capitalism, is the natural outgrowth of the market. They'll, they'll say, if you just let the market do anything, this is what you get. You get these monopolistic institutions that control all the wealth and land and resources and industrial production. And then they'll create a state and the, and the state will have an army and police and all that. And they do that to protect the property of the capitalist class. So for the Marxist view of the state is simply that the state is an instrument of class power. What matters to the Marxists is the mode, the mode of production. They have this concept of mode of production. And you know, in, in a hunter-gatherer society, the mode of production is hunting and gathering. In, the, in a traditional feudal society, agrarian society, the mode of, of production is agricultural production for subsistence purposes. And then in capitalism and in, in, or in industrial societies, you have uh, or commercial societies, you have it's based on the idea of production for sale and profit. And out of that, you comes monopolies and out of that comes the state. Right? So in other words, the market precedes the state according to the Marxists. Now, the anarchist view is the opposite of that. It's the inversion of that. The idea is that, no, what Marxists criticize as capitalism uh, really is simply something that the state created or is sort of like the economic arm of the state. Um, if you look, for example, at even a document like the U.S. Constitution, if you look at the enumerated powers in the Constitution that are given to the federal government, you can see that what they're trying to do clearly is create the institutional infrastructure that is going to be beneficial to the dominant merchant class, which tended to dominate the American, the, the, the first generation of American leaders, the American leaders from the revolutionary period. You know, that's what they came from. They came from what in, uh, either they came from what in England was called the gentry, which was basically large landowners, but but who did not have titles of nobility. Uh, for example, Thomas Jefferson was somebody like that, uh, although he didn't have much to do with writing the Constitution. Uh, or they came from the merchant class, or uh, which was basically you know, what we today would call corporations or whatever. Or they were what used to be called rentiers, which is basically bankers, and Alexander Hamilton was essentially one of those. Uh, but if you actually look at the American Constitution and the enumerated powers, you see, for example, that one of the things that Congress is supposed to do is impose uniform bankruptcy laws. And the reason for that is they thought that some of the individual states during the Articles Confederation period had far too uh, favorable bank, uh, bankruptcy laws when it came to debtors. You know, they wanted to have bankruptcy laws that were more favorable to creditors because a lot of these folks were bankers and large landowners that had itinerant farmers and stuff like that. So they didn't look too favorably on debtors. They liked creditors. Uh, that's just one example. Uh, another thing that you find in the uh, U.S. Constitution is that the power to coin money is is given a, a monopoly by the state. One thing they didn't like about the Articles of Confederation is that you had local groups having all kinds of things they were using as money. You had a lot of different currencies. 
Yeah, I mean, the United States Constitution was created in part so we could have a, a unitary monetary system like the euro. Like prior to the creation of the European Union and the euro, the all the European countries had their own money. Right? The, the European Union was created so they would be a unitary currency system where the U.S. Constitution was created for the same purpose in part. Uh, another thing that you find in the U.S. Constitution is a... Uh, the the, mil the the government's given the power to raise an army. One thing they didn't like about the Articles of Confederation is that they thought that the the Federation didn't have enough power to raise armies to suppress farmer rebellions and slave revolts and stuff like that. Particularly after Shays Rebellion and the, the Bacon, I mean the not, uh, Bacon's Rebellion was earlier, uh, the Whiskey Rebellion. Some of these rebellions that happened uh, in the uh, early American history, they thought you know that the they needed a strong central government to produce uh, to suppress rebellions by slaves, by uh, American Indians or Native Americans, or uh, by workers or by farmers, and or, you know, usually these are itinerant farmers. Uh, so the bottom line being that from an anarchist perspective, an anarchist would look at that and say, okay, the the uh, American Constitution was created to create the infrastructure of state capitalism for the capitalist class as it was at the time. And I would say, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, and that's largely the anarchist critique of the state. If you, you could look at all the different states that exist around the world, certainly the ones that emerged from that time period, and you could see that that's how they were, they were structured. So that's the essence of the difference between the Marxist and the anarchist view, the leftist anarchist view of capitalism. You know, Marxists will say that the, the market proceeds capitalism precedes the state and then the market produces what they call capitalism and that, that that the state is simply an arm of capitalism. Now there are another complication is that there are anarcho-Marxists that are you know even if they don't call themselves that, that there are some of these um, leftist anarchist sects that I was just describing like the anarcho-communist and syndicalist some of them hold to Marxist economic theory on this so they they some of them would have a similar critique of quote-unquote the market as the Marxists do, although they might advocate different solutions. They might not want to centralize control of the means of production into the state and have uh, central planning. They might want to have a, you know, a, a means of production controlled by a federation of workers and or, or cooperatives or collectives or mutual banks or something like that. Uh, but there's also other leftist, anti-capitalist anarchists who will say no, uh, the, the infrastructure, which I think is a, a, is a more accurate viewpoint, uh, from a historical perspective, who will say that, uh, no, actually, what we call capitalism, that is, these monopolistic, oligopolistic systems of uh, industrial production and financial institutions, banks, and all that, those are actually creations of the state, because the state creates the infrastructure for that. The state uh, so the state creates the terms on which that can happen and then protects it through police and military and courts and laws and that kind of stuff. The analogy that I like to use is to the Middle Ages. Um, if you look at the class structures that existed in medieval Europe, what you would find is on one hand you had royalty, you had the hereditary royal families, and then you had multiple royal families with different layers of power. Uh, and then you also had the uh, nobility. These were people that um, largely inherited large amounts of land. In those days, they measured wealth by land ownership, not in, not in terms of cold cash. But then you also had a layered aristocracy as well with different titles and different levels of nobility, as well as larger landowners without titles. Uh, and then you also had the church. You know, you had the, the church had its own system of state privileges. And then you also had these guilds that were somewhat monopolistic professional or trade guilds or something like that. 
Um, you can find parallels to that, or not to mention the army, the military. Um, the, you can find parallels to all of that in modern societies. We could, we, we could look at the political government in the United States, like the president, the Congress, the federal and state governor, I mean, federal bureaucracy, and then the state governors and the state bureaucracies, and say those are basically fulfilling the same uh, role as the monarchy in uh, in a medieval society, you could say that the U.S. president is basically an elected monarch, and you know these uh, state governors are just uh, regional elected monarchs, and and these cabinet agencies, you know, the de commerce department and state department, you know, those are just the king's ministries. And then we could say that uh, the corporations, um, the you know the Amazon and Walmart and Microsoft and Facebook and all of those, we could say those are like the feudal uh, plantation systems and manorial systems that existed in uh, medieval culture and medieval society on an economic level. Uh, and then we could look at the institutions that actually disseminate ideas that really shape the ideology of the wider society, uh, which would have been the church in the Middle Ages. Uh, Today, you know, we might have so-called big religion that exists on the periphery. You know, we've got these guys like Pat Robertson and, and Joel Osteen and Jerry Falwell and all that. But I think more important than those is the media, the mass media, and the university system and the educational system. I mean, that's really the modern church because that's the set of institutions that shapes the values and ideas of the wider society. And then we could look at something like, say, the uh, the the monopolistic professions, like the uh, the uh, medical profession is, a, is an excellent example. I've heard the medical profession re referred to as the white coat priesthood. Uh, and I think that's a good analogy because uh, the, uh, the uh, med you know, medical professionals and scientists and, and technological experts are often considered to be kind of like what medieval priests were considered to be. Not only do they have powers that are greater than those of ordinary people in the wider society, but they're considered to be uh, experts to whom we should always defer our opinions and, and things like that. Uh, you certainly have a range of professions where you have these monopolistic uh, set of privileges that are involved. Um, you know, far, far, pharmaceuticals are, are an obvious example, uh, which is very similar to the medieval guild system where you had these, these, these trade monopolies. So you find parallels to this in a modern society. You can look at any aspect of medieval society and see some kind of modern parallel to it. Um, but the big question is, well, is that due to the market or is that due to the state? You know, and I think that both libertarians and Marxists, in, to a large degree, get it wrong on this because libertarians, conventional libertarians, like you know, say, uh, you know, a, a Milton Friedman type, or maybe an Ayn Rand, or, or you know, even people that are somewhat more radical, like say maybe uh, Lou Rockwell or somebody like that, they tend to focus solely on the political government. They'll say that, well, you know, it's the elected officials, it's the bureaucrats, it's the you know, it's the state proper. That's really the problem. Then the left looks at it like, oh, no, the corporations are really the problem. You know, the state is just a political arm of, of the corporations. Um, you know, I, I would say that really all I would say it's, it's broader than that. You know, we've got if we really want to institute uh, criticize systems of institutionalized and concentrated power, we need to take a look at the political government. We need to take a look at the military industrial complex. We need to take a look at the big corporations, the banks the media, the educational system, the monopolistic professional systems. We need to take a look at all of that.
Outstanding. Outstanding. Thank you so much you for go. that uh, really detailed uh, explanation. I, I like I I feel like I'm going I'm going back to uh to, to to graduate school when I when I get all this information and I think it's going to be so helpful to our listeners. Um, I I can't thank you enough. Uh, does if anybody has any more questions, uh, go ahead. Otherwise, give us uh give us your plugs, Chris, Angel. Anybody else have any other questions? I do. Not um, know. Oh, go ahead, Angel. No, I was just saying I don't have any questions. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I actually, I actually do have a question. Um, so, uh, considering that you know the current events, you know the whole George Floyd situation, um, do you do you foresee any real change coming out of uh, you know our our policing institutions? Like, uh, like say for example, like and we had a discussion about this. I think either in our previous podcast or the one before where, uh, say like the LAPD were like, Oh, you know, we're slashing our budget by like 150 to 250 million. And we're going to reinvest that in minority communities. But, but they neglected to mention that their budget is like astronomically huge. It's like $1.8 billion. So 150 to 250 million. That's, that's a drop in the bucket. Um, and, and I had made the joke that, uh, you know, like, oh, no, you know, we're only going to be able to get 10 grenade launchers instead of 12 now. So uh, do you foresee any real change coming out of this situation? Yeah, well, there's a whole lot I could say about about this situation. But uh, my perspective on it, I think, is probably somewhat unique. But this, this is the context I would put it in. On one hand, what we have experienced in the United States in the last few weeks, I would say, is an actual insurrection. Uh, it's a very low-key, you know, low-intensity insurrection. I mean, if you want to know what a real insurrection looks like, you know, talk to a Vietnam vet or somebody that's faced down an insurrection in Iraq or somewhere like that, you'll get an idea of what a real insurrection looks like. But we've, we've had sort of a low-key insurrection against the American police state. Um, you know, and I think that uh, that's certainly interesting. Um, but what I find most interesting about it is the fact that the state and the, the ruling class or the power elite or whatever we want to call them, I, I think for the most part, it seems to me at least, that they could care less about any of this. Um, the um, What I think is interesting is that you have these situations where, say, localized properties of uh, these what I call neo-feudal corporations, and that is uh, places like uh, Bank of America, Amazon, Target, McDonald's, some of these places, they've had their properties burned out or looted, and what have they done? They've just turned that into a marketing gimmick. You know, they, they've uh, they've actually uh, started doing things like posting Black Lives Matter logos and all that kind of stuff on their social media. Not only that, but in the case of at least I know Amazon is doing this. Amazon is actually fuel funding both sides of the conflict. They're actually get providing funding for both Black Lives Matter and for the Blue Lives Matter groups. All right, so they're trying to, you know, like, like as Lenin said, the, West, the, the best way to control the opposition is to lead it yourself. You know, well, that's what they're doing. Um, so you see stuff like that going on where the capitalist class is trying to co-opt, I think very uh, ably and very shrewdly trying to actually co-opt the insurrection and bend it towards their own purposes and essentially make it into a sort of a means of uh, sort of a marketing gimmick. Uh, that, that, that's really interesting to observe. Uh, you also see these kinds of incidents where people have engaged in direct action, where they've uh, torched a police precinct or burned down a courthouse. Uh, and that's happened in both uh, blue and red zones. I mean, it's happened in places like Tennessee as well as in uh, Minneapolis and, and, and places like that. 
Uh, but the reaction of state and local officials has largely been indifferent. Uh, I, I think they don't seem to be particularly bothered by this, probably because they know that they can build more um, facilities like that with taxpayer money, which they you know, have a lot of. Uh, and then even at the national level, uh, you, know, you see Donald Trump coming out and trying to talk tough. You know, To me, Donald Trump is just a carnival barker. I mean, he's, he's not a fascist. He's too lazy to be a fascist. He's a... Uh, uh, He's, uh, you know, he's really just a carnival barker. You know, he's he's like the guy that's standing outside a tent at a circus who's got a peep show or something that he's running inside the tent. You know, like come on in and see the girls, boys. You know, something like that. that that's Donald Trump. That's who Donald Trump. Is. <laughs> Brilliant analogy. <laughs> so, but Donald Trump is trying to talk tough because he knows that his base, you know, these like elderly. Uh, people who watch Fox News, you know, he knows they they want to hear tough talk. So he's trying to talk tough and say, oh, I'm going to send out the military. And what happened? The actual ruling class, the actual deep state, the actual power elite just basically ignored him. You know, he just got a big eye roll for that from the secretary of defense, Mark Esper, who is a puppet of the of Raytheon, which is a big uh, armaments manufacturing company. And and the and the actual deep state property that the intelligence services and the, the actual upper echelons of the military and national security and all that, you know, they just gave him an eye roll when he said he wanted to call out the military. And and this guy Tom Cotton, who sort of personifies the kind of reactionary, you know, red state conservatism, you know, get tough on these leftist radicals or whatever, he tries to put an opinion piece in the New York Times. And then Abby Hoffman used to say that the uh uh, New York Times is the voice of the ruling class, and it is. Uh, it's really the mouthpiece of the ruling class, and that's um, that's why they call it the new pa- newspaper of record. That's what it, they, they mean when they say that. Uh, he tries to put this opinion piece in uh, the New York Times calling, go oh, get tough on these protesters, these rioters, or whatever, and, and they wouldn't even run the piece. Now, what, what that says, I think, is something that is, it illustrates a number of points that I've argued for years, but a lot of people seem to miss, and that is, number one, the actual government of our society is not what we see publicly. All of these public officials, governors, congressmen, the, even the president, these are just managers. Right? These are just like the managers that you find in a corporation. Right? The real power are those who are at that very upper strata of some of the things I just mentioned. The, the major technological sectors, the major financial sectors, the major industrial sectors, the, the major military and nuclear and then the civilian intelligence network and that kind of stuff, what's often labeled the deep state or whatever. All right, that's the real government of the United States. That's the real ruling class. All right. Um, it, when, when some of these conspiracy theory people, like these people who say that the world is being run by satanic cults based in the Vatican or um, you know, lizard people that are pulling the strings of all the world government, you know, space aliens or whatever. You know, they've got all kinds of crazy, uh, really off the wall conspiracy theories like that. You know, none of which I believe in, but all of which I think point to something that's real. And that is that when it comes to those who have real power, all this stuff that happens on the ground doesn't matter. Like if we look at all these things that go on in our society in terms of social conflict, which for decades now have been called the culture wars or the you know, liberals and conservatives and Democrats and Republicans and red states and blue states and you know, black and white and gay and straight and you know, different religions and all, all the different kinds of conflict that happens. While those kinds of things may matter to the people who participate in that or they may matter on some abstract intellectual level, you know, left and right, whatever, uh, it doesn't mean a thing to the true power elite. 
Right? They just see that as a bunch of tribes fighting on the ground. Uh, that, that doesn't have anything to do with the empire itself. Um, and I think that's a, something a lot of people tend to miss. Uh, also, I think that in some ways, disruption of this type can actually serve the interest of the state, or at least they can they can bend it towards their own interests. Because if you look at American foreign policy in the Middle East, which I paid quite a bit of attention to, the one there's one consistent theme, and it is the American government and its allies in the Middle East, which would be Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, and some others. There, it's clear that their goal is to create perpetual chaos. The one thing they don't want is any stable societies in the Middle East. If, they, if you look at what they did to Libya, if you look at what they did to Iraq, if you look at what they did to or tried to do to Syria, if you look at what they've done to Yemen, uh, if you look at what they've tried to do to, to uh, Lebanon and, and to a number of other places, Afghanistan, the one thing they don't want is a functional, stable society in any of these places, irrespective of what kind of government it is or kind of economy. Right. What they want is chaos. They want a bunch of failed states. They want a bunch of failed societies. They want a bunch of tribes and ethnic groups and religious sects and that kind of stuff fighting each other because that's easier to control. That's not going to that's not going to interfere with the ability of, say, the um, the global power elite that are uh, structured through things like the, you know, the uh, the IMF and the World Bank and International Monetary Fund and that kind of stuff, that's not going to pre prevent all of these different trade blocks that are structured through that from monopolizing the oil trade in the Middle East. Right? Some, some what they call rogue state, like a, a Qaddafi-type state that nationalizes oil production, right? that, that is a threat. Right? So, uh, I, and it seems to me they have the same basic attitude towards on-the-ground conflict in the domestic United States. I think ultimately they don't see that as being against their interests. They're fine with black people and white people and left wingers and right wingers and you know Christian people and gay people and all these other uh, communities fighting with each other because they're not fighting the elite when they're fighting with each other. It's uh, very similar to what happened when uh, when the old European colonial empires were being developed, like the uh, you know the, the Spanish Empire and the British Empire and the Belgian Empire and French Empire, all of those, when they would go and colonize the Americas and Africa and, and Asia, uh, what 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 one reason they were able to do that is because you would have all of these different indigenous communities, tribes essentially, and ethnic groups fighting with each other in these different places. And they found that they could, you know, make that work for them. The colonialists found they could make that work for them because they would buy off certain tribes or play different tribes or ethnic groups or religious sects or whatever off against each other. Uh, and that way they were able to divide and conquer, you know, the oldest trick in the book for, for rulers. Uh, that's what they did with the uh, Native Americans, for example, in the, in the uh, North America. Uh, you had all these different... Uh, you know, probably hundreds, if not thousands, of Native American tribes, some of which had been fighting each other since, you know, as far back as the history goes. Uh, and they were not able to put up a united front against the, Eng the well, the Spanish and then the English uh, settlers. Uh, so that's how they eventually got conquered. The same thing happened to the Africans. The Africans were, uh, you had literally hundreds of tribes, ethnic groups, whatever, uh, religions, in Africa, uh, they were constantly at war with each other. Some of them would take each other ca captive, and then they would sell them to the Portuguese, and, and then later the Spanish and the uh, English as, as slaves. Uh, and that's how 
Africa was essentially initially, that's how the slave trade in Africa developed, the, the transatlantic slave trade. And then that's how Africa was eventually successfully colonized by the um, colonialists as well. And you see a similar thing happened in, in a modern context in our own society. You see that we have all these different you know, culture war groups and red and blue and, and all of these different other things uh, that are fighting with each other on a ground level. And they're just all these are just modern tribes. You know, they're like the modern version of tribes and religious sects. Only instead of religion being really dominant, it's it's ideology. You know, ideology is the new religion. Um, you know, Nietzsche pointed that out way back in the 19th century. And instead of tribal ethnic identity in a literal sense, although there's some of that as well, but but instead of that, it's more about social identity. You know, what is your, what is, you know, for example, the LGBT movement, that's really just a tribe, you know, that's really just a type of social identity that has the, it's, a, it's an identity just like in a, a religion or a, uh, or an ethnic group, even though it's clearly neither one. So what we see going on in the United States is on the ground level, we see all these different tribes at war with each other. And I, I don't think the power elite proper really sees that as a problem. You know, if I were, you know, if I were, say, you know, the, uh, on the board of directors at Goldman Sachs or, you know, if I were on the National Security Council or if I were on the, say, the board of directors at Raytheon or Boeing or, or you know, one of these places and I saw all that going on, I don't think I'd feel threatened by it. I would be looking at it like, how can we use this to our advantage? Yeah, I think that's a good point because while we're all squabbling with each other, I mean, they're just counting the money as it rolls in. I mean, it's uh, it's not gonna the train's not gonna stop for uh, what's going on, uh, boots on the ground, so to speak. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, once again, anybody yes. else have anything else? Let me add one other thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, while, while all of this has been going on. The recent interaction and riots and protests, the pandemic, the shelter-in-place order, the stock market has actually been soaring. The ruling class is cleaning up. Uh, the wealth of the big corporations like Amazon and all that has grown exponentially in a matter of months. They're loving all this. Yeah, that's very true. Well, the other day, I forget what day it was. It closed five hundred points up or something like that. I mean, it was it was really it was a huge closing. I mean, I don't know yes. if it's it's going to make back uh, if it's going to gain back any of the losses from the economy taking the hit for over the past couple of months. But it sure there's indicators that it's going to. Yes. Yes. Uh, once again, anybody else have any other questions, Chris? Uh, nope, I'm, I'm good. Uh, sir, if you wouldn't mind uh, plugging everything that you have, if you have a Twitter, uh, of course, your uh, website, anything uh, for our listeners to come and check out. Um, I, I'm not really on much social media. I used to be on Facebook. I'm actually permanently banned from Facebook. Uh, Mark decided I was a little too much for him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm actually permanently banned from Facebook. I, I've never used Twitter. Uh, I don't think Jack Dorsey would have much use for me either. Uh, I, I, I do have a website, attackthesystem.com. In fact, some of the material you were quoting from is, is located there. Uh, it's just called, like it sounds, attackthesystem.com. Uh, and there's uh, that's where I do my, my social media, whatever you call it. Uh, and then I've written a number of books. I've written about a half a dozen books. You can get those through the website as well or, or through the publisher, which is called Black House Publisher. In, uh, it's located in London. Um, I, I have uh, contributions to a lot of other uh, works. There's a publisher that's also based in, uh, well, now based in Portugal called uh, Black, Black Front Publishing, uh, which pu publishes a lot of um, Compilation works that I've contributed to you, a lot of art, a lot of books where I'll have an individual article or two, essay or two. Uh, I've I've got a uh, 
there's another compilation that come out came out recently. It's all it's actually on conservatism. Uh, it's called uh, the Vanishing Tradition, and it's a collection of highbrow, very highbrow conservative scholars, basically explaining why the Republican Party and Fox News and all that are just a bunch of scam artists. And so it's like all these highbrow conservative scholars, and then crazy anarchist me uh, making these arguments. Um, so, and if, if you Google my name, uh, you can find all kinds of material about me. Um, you know, you can see what my enemies think of me, as well as my, you know, sympathizers. Outstanding. Uh, thank you very much. I'm also going to include uh, the link to your uh, to these articles from your website and also um, anything else that we uh, have discussed will be in the show notes. I actually own one of your books, Attack the System, A New Anarchist Perspective for the 21st Century. It's an excellent read. I recommend it to everybody. That link will also be in the show notes. Uh, we can't thank you enough for coming on. It was an absolute master class. Uh, I, I mean, it's, I'm going to have to listen to this myself several times so I can absorb as much information as possible. But once again, we can't thank you enough. Um, from uh, Angel the Sound Girl, thank you very much. Uh, Chris, thanks again. And um, uh, hopefully we'll uh, catch you all next time. You can find us on social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UseGuysPod. You can find us on Podbean, uh, Google uh, Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And once again, from all of us, thank you very much, and we'll catch you next time. Okay, bye. Bye, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.